coming up on Better Place Project. It's, it was just a beautiful thing to include in the book because, you know, you can be around people, but not going back to what I said earlier, know them, know their struggles, know their prayers, their concerns, their interests. And while you may think that you are a neighbor just because you're proximate or just around people, you don't actually become a neighbor to someone until you're present in their life. And I think that is the step beyond just being proximate. Make the world a place. Make the world a better place. Hey, hey, I'm Steve Make Norris. Welcome to Better Place Project, where each week we shine a light on Make amazing humans from every corner of the planet who are doing extraordinary things to help make the world a better place, including sharing their knowledge with us on how we can be living healthier, happier, more purposeful lives. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 179. Yes, I am back. Now, I know so many of you were worried about me. Thank you for all your emails, DMs, and texts asking, Steve, what the hell's going on? Why aren't I seeing new episodes? Some of you ask, are you still alive? What the hell? I know I haven't dropped a new episode since, I'm looking it up right here, wow, October 31st, over two months ago, which is rare for me. I'm usually, you know, week in and week out, or I at least let you know, hey, I'm going to be taking a few weeks off for these reasons, and I know my kind of down downtime was pretty just sudden, and I apologize for that, but I just needed some time away to recharge, reflect, spend some time with family over the holidays. My parents who live in Illinois are getting older, so I wanted to spend some time with them. So I flew back home for the holidays and just had a wonderful time hanging with siblings, uh, nieces, nephews, and it's just awesome. I've also been doing a lot of meditating, playing music, working out, taking care of myself, surfing. In fact, so much surfing that I've injured my shoulder, and I'm now I'm most likely to have to take some time off from that. I can't seem to learn to take it easy on my body. I'm not 25 anymore, but sometimes I still feel like I am until my shoulder pain comes. So I'm learning to take it easy when I have to. So hopefully I can keep doing the things that I love for many years to come. Also, I've been getting tons of inquiries as to when the heck is part two of my interview going to happen with Dr. Terrence Lester. Now, today, by the way, is the answer to that question. Part one was back on October 3rd, which I can't believe it was that long ago, and Terrence and I had so much fun on that chat, and the response was so awesome. Plus, we just didn't get to so much of the book that I wanted to get to that we decided to make it a two-part series. And we were originally going to record part two just a few days after we did the part one interview. We had it on our schedule, and but then Terrence had a conflict, so we rescheduled. Then I had a conflict, and I had to postpone, and... You get the idea. And we just weren't able to coordinate our schedules until just a few weeks back when we finally knocked out this second part that you are about to hear. Now, if you haven't listened to part one, definitely do that. It's such a just a powerful conversation. And we went pretty stinking deep. Again, that episode was back on October 31st. 
episode was number 171, I believe. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with Dr. Lester, he is the founder of Love Beyond Walls, a not-for-profit organization focused on poverty awareness and community mobilization. His work has been featured in USA Today, Black Enterprise, Essence, Reader's Digest, The Today Show, and Good Morning America. He was named by Coca-Cola as one of their history shakers. His books include ICU and When We Stand, and he lives with his family in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, in today's episode, we pick it up where we left off, and we talk about Terrence's time that he spent intentionally living amongst people experiencing homelessness and the effect that had on him. We talk deeper about what it means to be proximate. We go far deeper into the book and we go off on a few really interesting and perhaps slightly controversial tangents, but I think these are things that need to be talked about. Dr. Lester is certainly one of the most interesting and inspiring people that I've ever had the pleasure to chat with on this show. And I hope you find this conversation as salient and meaningful as I do. And now I bring you Dr. Terrence Lester. Make the world a better place. Make the world. Welcome back, Dr. Lester. Steve, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be here, excited to continue our discussion. We're finally knocking out part two of our conversation about your book. We both have had crazy busy schedules, so we've had to reschedule this a few times, and I know you've been going through a lot in your life. So let's start off with me asking, how are you doing, Dr. Lester? Yeah, uh, the best I can say is that I am present. I am here and have been committing myself to the work of uh, self-care, caring for my physical, emotional, spiritual health, while also showing up and dealing with all that life brings. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of like the best way I I can describe it. And if you're a human, if you're a human breathing, living person, you understand that statement. I so understand it. And in fact, yeah, it's, it's, I think we're perhaps living a little bit of concurrent lives because over the last, you know, couple of months, I've had a lot of things going on also in my personal life. And, and, you know, for three years, I never missed a podcast being published um, ever in, in in three years. And no matter what was going on in my life, I had a deadline. I made it. I hit it and and always did. And and for the first time, you know, and I, I've taken a couple breaks, but I announced it to my audience, hey, I'm gonna be taking a break for two weeks or four weeks or what have you, but never have I um, just just realized that wow, I've got an episode published next week. I've got so many things going on. And I've had to cancel some interviews. I've had to cancel a couple solo episodes. And and I just said, you know what? It just, it's not as important. It just, uh, the podcast will survive. And I just had to take some time. And I and I still am actually on hiatus and uh, for another couple of weeks anyway, maybe longer. We'll see. But you and I had this schedule, so I'm so glad and grateful for you for, for, for hopping on so we can wrap up and finish talking about so many things we didn't get to in your book, which, by the way, is All God's Children, How Confronting Buried History Can Build Racial Solidarity. And 
And by the way, you may recall in our in our last chat in part one, I shared with you the story of that I had been driving on expired tags for for two years, you know, at that point. And um, we'll just want to let you know in October, I got my 2024 tags through 2024, and I still have not put those on my car either. They're in my glove box. So, so I'm keeping this little, um, you know, keeping this little experiment ongoing. I still have not been pulled over for, I'm now in the third year of driving with expired tags. So, and um, so for those of you that are listening that don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to part one and you'll hear Dr. Lester share, you know, his thoughts on that is very profound. And you shared very openly how you feel when a police officer pulls up behind you, let alone, you know, doesn't even turn on their lights or pull you over. So we don't have to get back into that. Go back to uh, part one and listen to that listeners if you haven't. So if we could start, um, I think uh, to shed a little context for, you know, a lot of our listeners, Dr. Lester, if you could share with us that that years ago, you took to the streets and you spent a month in the heart of Atlanta living on the streets with people experiencing homelessness. Can you share with us why you felt compelled to do that and you went to your family and got their blessing to do it? And what was that experience like for you? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point, man. And, um, you know, in the spirit of uh, the tag demonstration or uh, experiment or immersion that you're putting yourself through, I think that was the crux and the heart behind why I would want to live among those that our organization Love Beyond Wall serves and also live immersed among those that I wanted to be proximate to. Um, you know, the 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 funny thing about immersive experiences is that you go into it um, with hopes of you know, wanting uh, to learn certain things or having some predetermined notion about the things that you would actually learn. And then once you get immersed into the actual context, all of these things hit you, right? Emotionally, uh, in your sensor, senses, you know, in the sensory of yourself. Uh, it's a full body experience. And so I think one of the things that I was trying to do was not only to bring awareness to the issue of invisibility as it relates to those who are unhoused, but also to be proximate enough to sit with their voices, their concerns, their struggles, their fears, their hopes, their dreams, the inaccessibility, and be proximate in, in, in enough ways where I could have that full body experience where when I am talking about the conditions, I'm not doing so with the lack of proximity in my life. And so it was, man, I still remember living underneath bridges uh, in the middle of the winter and walking tons and tons of miles just to charge a cell phone with some of my friends or 
you know, being seven minutes late to a an emergency shelter and being turned away because we were minutes late um, or being talked down to by people who ro- work in fast food restaurants while in the back of my mind, knowing that they are near the poverty line or below the poverty line themselves. I remember the cold stares and the mean mugs of business professionals as we walked in the group trying to find the best place to keep warm, cross the street, and then look at uh, my friends. And I would turn towards a Tony or a Mark and he, and they would say, see, um, even the, the, the looks and the cold stares and the mean mugs does something uh, to damage our sense of self-worth. And so, that type of proximity and that type of immersion, although at that time in my life, I was not unhoused, I chose to be amongst this population. It gave me greater insight into the the humanity, the shared hope, the shared struggle, the shared community. I remember at times underneath bridges, people would rally together and bring clothes that were donated and throw it in the fire pit to burn just to keep warm because guess what there was no thermostat on the wall there was no wall there was no firewood and so you know those types of experiences not only still quicken and inform my voice but it reminds me of man sometimes those who are excluded and vulnerable and overlooked have greater generosity than those sometimes who have access to all the resources and they embraced me. They welcomed me. They knew why I was there, but they also walk with me as I walk with them. And that is one of the greatest experiences that has shaped my heart and shaped my continued message of, of love, belonging, and dignity. And that's a, a, a beautiful message. And one of the things that you mentioned in our very first interview two and a half plus years ago when I had asked for, you know, what can the general population, what can we do differently when we come across a person experiencing homelessness on the sidewalk or, or what have you? And, um, and you said, stop, see them, acknowledge them. But what really stuck with me is you said, ask them their name. Mm. Hi, I'm Steve. What's your name? And, and ever since you did that, I always do that. I will always ask them, Hey, what's your name? Um, you know, tell me your story. How's your day going? And, and just to, like you said, you use the word humanity and, and to, to be in a position where just walking across the street, or as you mentioned, the looks from business people that dehumanize them, I just, it, I, I think that's the least that we can do is acknowledge the humanity of our fellow citizens out on the street. So thank you for that, for sure. Yeah. I mean, let me ask you, uh, you know, I still think about the courage it takes to be proximate to people. Uh, you know, I know last time we briefly touched a about this cognitive proximity, right? How do we 
grapple with other people's stories and and really get the chance to understand the historical shaping of of one another. But it's the same approach that I've taken even in my work uh, towards those who are unhoused and experiencing poverty, right? How can I be proximate? Not just proximate physically and geographically, but proximate cognitively, where I'm actually understanding what has shaped them, everything about them. And that is also a part of the full body experience. But I want to ask you, you know, as you think about your continued immersion, what is driving you right now as it relates to this type of proximity that you're embodying? Because, you know, the step itself is an act of acknowledgement. I guess the best way I can answer that is that I've been on a bit of a spiritual journey the last the last few years and and it's it really comes down to choosing love in all acts of you know in all acts and areas of my life and mm. and I came mm. to the realization that through a large part of my life I think I've always been a good kind person and considerate and caring and loving but I was also very judgmental. Mm. So I was one of those that, um, you know, that, that, that did, I, I, I grabbed onto the narrative. This is going back, you know, many years ago, but of the narrative that, you know, people experiencing homelessness, you know, want that, or they chose to do drugs or they, or if I give them money, they're just going to go buy drugs. So I'm not going to give them money. And those were all ras- rationalizations to make, us and make me in particular feel better about not acknowledging them and because they chose that so so I had I just didn't have the compassion you know and it so it just took me to really go inward and see that this is judgment and this is fear-based thinking fear-based thinking deep down we all fear that if we have too much proximity to that then, you know, deep down, we know that we are capable of being in that same situation. But if we're close enough to that, we can get sucked into that. Or um, so it just comes down to fear based thinking. Whereas I am passionate right now at this stage of my life that I want to choose love in everything that I do on how I interact with my children, my parents, my siblings, mm. my best friends, my girlfriend. Mm. Um, Choose love. When I'm in the middle of an argument, am I mm. being defensive or am I mm. choosing love? And mm. also educating myself on this particular issue of people experiencing homelessness, that it's usually not that they, you know, got hooked on drugs or not that it's it's what I've come to learn. And and even if it was, who cares? Any of us can can go through a hard time and and all of a sudden become an addict it can happen to any of us but so often it's also a catastrophic loss of a loved one that it's a young person that's maybe 17 18 years old and their their mother dies and they have no one to take care of them so now they're on the streets homeless so i was fortunate that didn't happen to me so so i guess it's a combination of me going inward but also choosing love and when you choose love compassion comes 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 along with it does that answer your question it does it does um but there's a process and i i just want to honor that 
you are aware of the process in your own, you know, spiritual journey, your own journey of seeking and searching that you acknowledge the turning point. I don't know what happened. We don't know what happened, right? That makes a Steve more compassionate or more aware of a Steve, right? Um, to show up better in the world. But I hear it, brother, and and like celebrate you for acknowledging that. And I think that is the wall, right? So sure. to speak, that keeps people caved in, boxed in, and really keeping that sort of mental wall or wall in your heart or however you want to describe it, it keeps them from being proximate with love towards their neighbor. And who is neighbor? You know, there's some uh, spiritual uh, language around the idea of neighbor, but neighbor itself is basically whoever is around you, who's in your world, whoever you are proximate to. Neighbor is just not the person that you have an affinity towards, right? Uh, They think like me, they come from the same background as me, uh, they they vote like me, they uh, believe the same things that I believe. No, neighbor means that you have the ability to cross lines, to step around walls and ideologies, to connect with everybody, the whole community. That's neighbor. Yeah. Now, well said, well said. And I think, you know, on top of that, I would just add that it's it comes down to also Terrence, a desire to live and examine life and, Mm. and, and be an observer and be conscious. And for much of my life, I was just unconscious career, job, car, house, check the boxes. And, and it's just unconscious living. And I Mm. think the more we decide, do we want to live and examine life to take a look at ourselves and how am I doing where am I failing? How can I be better? Now, when you start asking those questions of yourself and you start going inward, you realize that that we all have our trauma. You know, we all mm. have our trauma. We all have our, our you know our stories. But but how can I be better? How can I show up? You know, better in the world. And um, you know, to me, it's still a lot more things I need to improve on for sure and and become better. But you know, to your point, it really comes down to not only loving your neighbor, but seeing them, um, mm. seeing them without condition, without judgment, without seeing them as us, seeing you know them as God. Um, every single person walking down the street is the universe. They are God. They are our you know equals. So that was that kind of perception shift was a game changer for me as well. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, seeing the image of God in all of uh those who have humanity is is central to seeing, right? And is central to this this idea of interconnectedness that um whatever I do for you, I'm also doing for myself because we are tied as Dr. King said uh, to this inescapable design of of mutuality, right? We're yeah. we're tied by this like this bun, right? And um, I think that is kind of like what we need more of in this present moment, 
Um, man, I mean, you think about it, man. It's it's chaotic to pick up a cell phone and read anything uh, news related these days. Seriously. And, you know, I think the trauma of that social media trauma, um, the trauma of being made aware of many injustices happening all at once through a smart device can make people feel what I describe in uh, one of my former books, When We Stand, this paralyzation. And it leaves people afraid, filled with fear and questioning, what can I even do to change anything, right? And so um, it kind of almost, uh, in many ways, pushes people to be in a bubble, right? To be uh go within and to just be around uh, about you know me myself uh us for no more whatever type of phraseology you want to use and just kind of focus in focus in on your world but what i hear you saying is that we need to extend ourselves beyond all of that absolutely it, to me it's it's critical i think for I think it's 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 criti- critical for the su- sustainability of humanity. I think we're at a turning point, and I don't think I'm being hyperbolic here or or, or over dramatic. Or um, we can either wake up as as humans and decide who do we want to evolve mm. or how who do we want to you know become. Um, Or we can continue to go down this road of living kind of unconsciously mine versus yours, um, acquiring things versus, you know, taking care of our of our of our brethren. Um, You know, we truly are at a crossroads. and, And at the end of the day, I have more hope. I really do on any given day that that uh, the help meter goes up or down, depending on, like you said, the news cycle, you look on your phone and like, my God, you know. Bombs are being dropped on hospitals, or you know, so it's 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 tough. But I think um, I think we have no choice but to, you know, I feel called upon every chance that I get to talk about choosing love over fear. I mean, yeah. I just think it's that simple. If we can teach our children in everything that we do to recognize when we're making decisions that are fear based. Versus making decisions that are based on love. If we can teach that thing alone to our to our children, regardless of the religion that we want them, regardless of the church that we take them to, um, the world will become a better place, and so many of these problems will go away. Yeah, which at the core of any uh, faith tradition is is uh, the tenet of love. <laughs> all all of them. Right? That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that, man, that just resonates with me right now, especially when, man, I just see so much conflict. Um, and I, I really believe that I was reading the article and it was talking about the unhealthiness of people in this present moment, like unresolved trauma, trauma from you know, global uh, uh, events, the trauma of, you know, injustice, the trauma in personal relationships, 
the trauma within self, right? Like all of this is compounding where I think we have as a society come to a moment where we are just grappling with unhealthiness. And, you know, I, I raise these questions, not just rhetorically, but like, how can we embody love when we haven't cared for ourselves in the way where we could process trauma to bring us to the point where we can look at somebody mm -hmm. else and say you are worthy, right? If we're yeah, that's still grappling with that within ourselves, how can we want peace, right? When all we have known in our own life is battles and war and chaos. How can we want uh, the the dignity of another regardless of their social location to be protected if we have lived a life believing that uh, only a select group or a select few are worthy to be included. And so like we really have to grapple with uh, this pre present moment and the unhealthiness of this present moment in our society and culture. And so, you know, not only do we have work to do outside, you know, to make sure people are, um, advocated for, have access, all of those things. But we also have to do the work uh, on the inside because we can only show up in the world with what we have been willing to deal with on the inside of ourselves. No, that's a, a beautiful and salient question you just asked right there that how can we possibly, you know, I think, you know, if I could kind of summarize what I interpret of what you just said is, is unless, you know, unless we faced our own trauma, unless we choose love for ourselves and we find self-love and healing, you know, we are almost incapable of showing true love outwardly. And, and I'm reading Gary Zukov's book, Spiritual Partnership. He talks about just that, 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 you know, and he even uses the word unconditional love. And he says that is a, that's redundant. Love is without condition. It's just a, saying unconditional love is like, is like saying wet water. It's completely redundant. Love exists without condition. So if we don't truly love ourselves and we haven't healed internally, we haven't watered our own garden, we haven't addressed our own trauma, and if we aren't love ourselves, any love that we show outwardly is, is external power. It's not authentic power, if that makes sense. The difference between the external power and the authentic power is you see some of the videos I'm sure of, of people going around and in, in, into a grocery store and, Hey, can you give me a dollar? And, and the first person that gives them a dollar here, I'm going to give you 500 back. And, you know, they videotape themselves and all of that. And, and is that authentic love or is that, you know, authentic power or is that external power? Is it, I'm really trying to look good on Instagram. So I'm posting myself, you know, giving $500 to a, a, a stranger who just gave me a dollar. And, and I think that's a very, real point that we need to take a look at is our love authentic and genuine and I, and I think if we don't practice self-love and healing we truly are incapable of showing true authentic love outwardly so I will put the question back to you what advice do you have for us on 
how we can work on healing our inner our healing our trauma, whether it be from childhood or even adulthood. Um, what are some steps that you recommend that we can take? Yeah, man. I uh and everybody I just want to preface this with like everybody's unique journey towards healing. And uh, it is different. Right. And when I say healing, I'm not saying healed. Right. Because healing is a continuous journey. That sure is lifelong, lifelong. Right. They're always, you know, greater depth and greater awareness and greater introspection that you're doing to bring yourself to a point where you have the courage to process um gain a perspective, express your feelings ultimately to release. Right. And so I think for me, it started with the first step um, of telling myself there's something that is happening in my internal weather that I need perspective on. Um, And I need to process that. Right. So uh, for me, I had to find, uh, you know, a therapist uh, that I was comfortable with, that I found safety in where I could literally be vulnerable. And most times when people talk about the uh, the idea of vulnerability, it's still rooted in surface stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. I want to share just enough to get by or to avoid or to run. Right or to not give people a chance to be close where I I fear they will hurt me. But vulnerability, the idea of vulnerability is to make yourself vulnerable in a way where you can fully see who you are mm-hmm. at the core. What is driving you know, your thoughts, your thought life? What is driving some of the behaviors? How are you processing uh, things related to uh, the narratives that's playing in your head or the the certain circumstances or experiences that you've had that you've never had a chance to voice. And so for me, it it started with just opening up and and talking and talking and and allowing myself to express my truest emotions toward different experiences, different circumstances, different life events that happened to me. So I can gain an alternative perspective, expressing your emotions and gaining an alternative uh, perspectives gives you greater um, clarity in how you see yourself sure. in the, the yeah. story. It helps you to process and change the narrative within yourself. And you're processing and working through some of those things internally that ultimately bring you to a place of release. And the the reason why I say release is because um, it, if I could give you a picture, yeah, I, I don't know about you, but uh, my wife, when we go traveling, like she's the person that packs multiple suitcases, like takes everything with us. And it's just like, what are we doing? Like, I know it well. I just did an East Coast trip with my girlfriend. We were there three nights and she had a, I mean, and I... Yo, like you when can we see the- your entire month, right? And so- exactly. It was. I'm like, it lo- looks like you packed for a month in Europe, you know, let alone three days in, in Florida. Yeah. Exactly. But if we think about that concept related to emotions and trauma, 
right? Yeah. And you're still going along the journey. Think about the the suitcases of unprocessed trauma. And so this idea of unpacking gives you the ability to to sift through things and say, oh, that it I, I don't need that anymore. I don't need that perspective. I don't need that narrative. I don't, you know, and it gives you the ability to be lighter in the ways in which you show up. And then the second step from that is like, yo, I needed to learn healthy coping skills, right? Uh, and how to manage, right? Some of the, the trauma, right? And so for me, that's changing my diet, um, making sure I have a support system in terms of relationships that's uh, showing up to the gym, caring for myself, uh, making time where I have balance, where I can just sit in silence, meditate, pray, do some of the things that are life-giving to me. Because if you're constantly pouring from the cup of your being, right, uh, and you never refill it, that causes the emptiness and it adds to the trauma. And so those are two practical steps that has helped ground me uh, as I show up to do the work of justice, to write, uh, to stay committed to the work that I, I feel very called to and uh, to see uh, myself in ways where I know that I'm enough. I know I'm worthy. And therefore, I am giving of that love within myself towards others that I come in contact with. Wow. I love the suitcase metaphor. Um, that's really cool. In fact, I'm going to steal that. I love that a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I also want to ap applaud you for, for showing, you know, vulnerability there as well. And I want to also, you know, match that and and show the courage as well to point out that for the first time in my life the last it's 3 months maybe not 2 months maybe not even 3 months i am in therapy for the first time in my life and that's not well not totally true i went to a therapist a handful of times 5 6 years ago but but um but didn't stick with it cuz thought i don't i don't need this i have my act together i you know and and but this time I'm committed to continue with it because it's been really, really, really helpful. And I think um, it. I needed to get to the point where I recognize some things that I need some help walking through. And um, and I think we men especially, it's a lot tougher for us in our culture of you know men don't cry, you know men you know suck it up, Buttercup, and and. And the thought of that we need help, there's kind of, you know, I, I'm happy to see that it's less than it was, but there's been a stigma attached to therapy. And I just want to say to men and women out there, but especially us men who, you know, I know I was one of them that that just thought, I, you know, I don't need to go to therapy. I can talk to my friends and I can work it out and I can read self-help books, but it really is beneficial to find someone that you trust, that you resonate with, that you can kind of unpack some of these things that have gone on your life and do it in real time every week. Hey, what, what happened this week? And, and then you begin to recognize little patterns of things that you're doing and patterns that aren't serving you. Things that are in your luggage that you said, I love that metaphor, that, that, that you can now take out of the suitcase and stop carrying with you, for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, I think um, if I could, you know, 
just what I hear is therapy is healthy for mental health support, right? Um, because to be alive is to experience trauma. Like it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, right? Sure. It's uh, part it, of the human experience. Human experience, right? Human suffering. Um it also can help with uh personal growth and self-understanding, uh skill development. Maybe there's some skills, right? Huge one. Absolutely. The little skills. You can say the same thing two different ways and you can have a pissed off partner or a partner that loves you. (laughs) Yeah. Emotional release. Yeah. Problem solving, behavioral change, improving relationships, trauma healing, preventative care. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, it's the, the laundry list of the benefits of finding safe space. And allowing yourself to be walked with is it's 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 essential. And man, I think as we talk about the hard subjects, the greater the depth of personal care has to happen. Um, man, you throw somebody out in uh, water who hasn't been trained to swim will drown. Um, you ride on an airplane and the first thing that the, the, you know, the program tells you on the screen, if you're on a flight with a screen is in case of an emergency, put on your oxygen mask first, you know, help or assist someone else. Um, you think about academics, academics, right? Um, counselors have to go through a practicum. Uh, medical doctors have to go through a residency. Uh, lawyers have to go through uh, some type of internship and pass. So, like the bar, yeah, it, it's it's the it's the fact of life that you need support as you show up to do tough work. And maybe the tough work may not necessarily be right away. Uh, standing with other people, maybe the tough work is getting yourself to a point that you were talking about earlier, that turning point where you realize that you have more to give. Absolutely. Um, okay. Can we jump into the book? <laughs> yeah. Finally, we'll get to the book. Uh, can you um, share the story where you went into, you were speaking at a real estate foundation where you were one of four leaders representing nonprofits and you were attempting to receive a grant and a white woman who was on the board walked up to greet you. Can you share that story with us? Yeah. Mm. I sat in the car after that experience and, and I felt full of shame. I wept. Um, at that point, I had been doing the work with Lebeon Walls probably eight years and was invited uh, to be a part of like this pitch competition, uh, the only black led nonprofit. And so uh, I'll never forget, you know, I do work in the streets and so I wear hoodies and jeans. Sure. And I put on my my best dress coat, <laughs> you know, like a, a button up. My jeans. I walked in, and uh, the entire board were, you know, white people. 
which I have no, no problem with that because, you know, I navigate different spaces. I have a lot of diverse relationships, et cetera. And so I went in there really fired up. And the first question this uh, middle-aged white woman asked me after she greeted me, are you the one that's going to present? And I was looking like, uh, yeah, I, I am the one. And as I looked around the room, it dawned on me that she hadn't done our research and she was expecting a white representative um, to be in the room to communicate um, about our organization. And so we go through the entire day, everybody pitches. And then the questions that I was asked were more personal about my development and my education. And I had to like, kind of, I felt like I had to prove myself and all of those things. And I, I'll never forget walking away from that room, knowing before I got to the car that they would not support us and that they would go with other people because the questions were different. And I'll never forget sitting in the car and I wrote this um, this quote about, you know, how black leaders aren't you know, just charity grabs. We are innovators and uh, advocates and are close and proximate to the community. And um, we are more than just like a bottom line and like just kind of really expressing myself. And I, I posted a, a brief snippet of the story online. And I mean, thousands of people reshared and people were commenting. I went through the same experiences. And so it was just like that moment where you realize that you are black because of how you are treated. And here it is. At that time, I was in a PhD program. Sure. Have two master's wow. degrees, one in clinical counseling, you know, and have since then uh, completed my PhD. I'm a researcher, like, all of the experiences overcame uh, homelessness myself as a teenager, like all of these, like, it's just, and I still had to prove myself. And, you know, as you ask that question, man, it makes me think, man, like sometimes we, uh, you know, rooms like that are unaware and short-sighted and, lack notice right yeah and the depth of understanding what all it took for me just to be standing in that room the hurdles the poverty sure. the trauma the relentlessness the uh the resilience the you know uh growing up against all odds the statistics the everything bro that was me standing in there full body ready to offer and give of myself in the same way that my colleagues who may have had lighter journeys than me, sure. I'm not pointing that out as to victimize myself. I'm just pointing like as a fact, as a matter of fact, as a fact. As a fact. Um, and uh, I wasn't received. And I think uh, I'll, I'll never forget, I was uh, sitting on a panel with uh, Father Gregory Boyle, 
And that was a question that came up. We were talking about poverty and our work. He works with um, formerly incarcerated gang members. I do work with the unhoused and those who are poor. And this question came up about love. What is love really like? And I'll never forget him making this beautiful statement about how love itself is about receiving people. Mm. And man, let me tell you, I know as a black man that I, I, I can feel it in my body when I walk into the room and there's this idea of welcome, but the absence of love. Wow. Because love is about receiving people. And all of their you-ness, whoever you are, whatever is shaped you, right? I, I can feel that in my body, and that's what I felt in that moment. Wow. Well, I'm sorry, dude, that you had to go through that to, like you said, overcome so many hurdles to to get to where you are and then to not feel, you know, acknowledged or received. Um yeah, it's just it's just such saddens me to hear that. And and as you're telling that story, it it made me think of another story that you shared in the book where you were where you walked into a room and it was a white worship leader. And he says to you, Hey, what up, dog? <laughs> and 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 you got a little offended, you know, by this. And and I read this this whole thing because um, in your mind you felt he's using street language and it was, quote, his way of engaging as best he understood with black culture and reducing me to what he thought I would relate to. He wouldn't have thought of addressing notable black figures such as Oprah Winfrey or Barack Obama with that type of lingo, but he felt it was suitable for me. End quote. And then you also talk about another someone else who said, hey, what up, Big T? And you stated that, quote, to the black person, it can feel as though we are being viewed as less as we are being viewed as less in the mind of someone white. And this passage broke my heart in, in, in this book. But but for maybe not, you know the reasons that you might expect um, it because it really to me shined a light on, you know, how we really need to have this dialogue and because I would have had no idea, Dr. Lester, that, that saying a phrase like that would be felt from your end as as in the way that you received it and 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 just to give an example i think it's so embedded in our culture that i use very similar expressions like that to my friends you know what up johnny t what up you know to that are lawyers and doctors and you know and what have you and and so i know that i have done that in the past to my black friends and acquaintances and it never so so in other words i i felt i felt empathy for both of you when i read that story because i felt for you 
because here you felt you weren't being received and you felt like this person was being condescending towards you, which is horrific and abhorrent and 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 but but I but I also saw myself in that person who you know, I assure you my intentions are never to, you know, ever be condescending to any human being, um, regardless of their socioeconomic or, uh, you know, educational background and so forth. And, you know, so, so I think this is so important that we have this dialogue because I, yeah, I, I, I felt for that, that, that preacher as well, because I'll say that to people of all colors, you know, Indian friends, what up dog, how's it going? And, and not think that, yeah, that, that, you know, that, that you or any other black man or woman might interpret that as we're being condescending. So I think that was a critical passage in the book to put in there, but I wanted to, you know, kind of share with you that, that from my perspective, I had empathy for that white pastor. And, 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 and I wanted to kind of come to his defense there a little bit without even knowing him that perhaps, you know, and, and you know, you knew that situation. So, so I'm not in any way undermining how you felt. I'm just saying that, oh my gosh, I think I probably have made a black man feel like you felt completely unbeknownst to me. And I assure you that my intentions were never anything other than, you know, saying to somebody who I had affection for, hey, what up, dog? What up, T? You, you see what I'm saying? So how can we... So so now that I've read that, I will be... And you see, this is where it gets kind of to be mental gymnastics in that because I want to be respectful. Having read that, my first reaction was, should I refrain from... You know, so if, so if I stop talking to my black friends and acquaintances in the same way that I talk to everybody, is that right also? Because now I'm talking to them differently because of the color of their skin. So is that, so help me, you know, what, what advice do you have for how we can come together on like dialogue like this? Man. Um, okay. Well, this is uh, kind of like a, a loaded question. Okay. So historically, um, I don't know if you remember where uh, racism, discrimination, cultural misunderstanding, this whole idea of the way that Black people speak uh, in terms of use of vernacular uh, was used for racial stereotyping and discrimination uh, linguistic prejudice, right? Sure. Uh, yeah. Using words like ebonics, oh, black people speak ebonics because it's quote unquote broken English, it's not proper, right? Which later became African America, uh, American vernacular, right? Sure. Uh, which is a, a more appropriate way to talk about the brilliance that emerges out of the context of the black experience. Right. And so um, language was also used to dominate uh, social political rhetoric in terms of power dynamics and social control and also media representation. Right. Making uh, black folks sound ignorant in certain films that were being produced in the the sixties and the seventies. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Earlier, uh, you know, you can go back to the Birth of a Nation, 
uh, the movie that was shown at the at the White House by a, a sitting president that had, um, you know, black people being depicted as uh, ignorant beasts, you know, uh, violent criminals, all of those things. And so when uh, and, and also like the emergence of hip hop, right, uh, that started in the 1970s and it was a response uh, to cultural, economic, systemic oppression, right, where black people actually found a uh, a uh, a way to express um, the 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 oppression and the things in which we were dealing with um, historically, right, and so a lot of that had African American vernacular, right, and so sure. um, sometimes when I am not in what you say in relationship with someone who is from a different, uh, you know, social location background um, uh, and there's no relationship, right. It can come off as though uh, a white person or a person who is trying to use African-American vernacular um, is trying to reduce themselves. Sure. How they may perceive someone who may be black. Right. Instead of actually seeing the value and the worth and the brilliance that has emerged from the black cultural experience. Now, granted, now, if we are on the same lines, we built that bond, you immersed yourself into my experience, you understand culture, you have uh, done that type of work um, to, uh, you know, uh, relate to me in that way, then it's all good. But if you don't know me, right? Yeah. And you approach me with uh, this type of um, uh, 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 rhetoric, not knowing who I am, how I show up in the world, um, you know, all of those things, then it makes me want to know what makes a person talk to me that way. Are they using it from a uh, historical lens of seeing black folks uh, in a in a uh, a belittling way, uh, are you using linguistic prejudice? Are you uh, you know kind of associating this with how you were raised? Have you been proximate? Is a cultural misunderstanding? Is a cultural appropriation? Like I'm I'm going through all because I don't know how a person who may be talking like that that does not have that depth of relationship may be showing up. And so as a black person, I have to guard myself because I never know if it's intended to uh, authentically build relationship, um, authentically relate, or if it's used through a lens of lesser than. Gotcha. Yeah, Uh, I need to relate with a lesser than uh, intellect based upon historical context, not the actual brilliance and all of the things that emerges from, uh, or, you know, some type of social control, like, um, or based upon the imagery that you only know black people to, to be depicted in. And so I need to understand that about who you are because the, 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 the real essence is like, yo, like I've been on calls and I was the only black PhD and everybody was called doctor except me, right? Um, wow. Just I just did a um, uh, a panel discussion, and 
uh it was with some fellows with a <laughs> real uh you know known organization and the moderator uh everybody was calling me uh Dr. Lester but the moderator could not bring herself to call me by my actual title and so wow there's this this idea of like um reducing uh people uh, black people down uh, for control based upon prejudice and all those things and so i'm j- i hope you hear what i'm saying it's not to be offensive to anyone it's just sure. man you don't know me yeah I'm not just one expression of how you have seen me. You know, I love hip hop, but I love books. Uh, you know, I love justice and I also uh follow uh the historical Jesus. Like I it, it I'm so complex and don't just try to drill me down to being uh one expression of uh an image that you may have of me or the black experience in your head. Yeah, no, that, that, that totally makes sense. I, yeah, for example, I wouldn't go up to any man, you know, or woman of any race or color that I didn't know well and say, Hey, what up dog? You know what I mean? It would only be, I think that's maybe where I had the disconnect in the book. I don't know. I think I was, I was maybe not aware that maybe this white pastor or what have you that, that he didn't know you at all. Then I can totally see how that would be completely inappropriate if if yeah. he did not know you at all to just you know hey what up dog that yeah, I can well, see. we we also have to deal with this idea of knowing just because you talk to someone <laughs> doesn't mean that you know them sure. just because you're you know proximate to someone yeah doesn't mean you've shown up with presence to get to know them and so the knowing part is the root system that happens that we need to address in relationships. And and most times we are only dealing with the fruit, <laughs> the yeah. surface, the branches, the leaves. And it's like, yo, like, if you really want, yo, <laughs> bruh, you know, yo, dog, like if you <laughs> want to go in depth, let's deal with the root system. You yeah. And with that comes the 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 this idea of solidarity and, and connections. Now, I think that's well said. Thanks for uh, kind of giving a little more detail on that. And I had a similar experience myself when years ago I was doing a lot of business in Mexico City, and I was going down there like every quarter. And so I started learning Spanish so I could so I could speak Spanish with my with my my customers down there and show the respect. So here in the Los Angeles area, every time I would be in a restaurant, every time I would speak Spanish to them because I was practicing my Spanish. And and what I found for weeks and then months, as I was starting to get fluent, I would speak to someone in a restaurant and I'd see uh, someone ahead of me speaking Spanish to them, placing the order. And then I would go up and I would speak Spanish and place it in, you know, and in, in place my order in Spanish. Or I'm at a table, a waiter would come by that answer me in English all the time. And, and I told my, my Spanish teacher, I said, this is so, you know, frustrating. They always answer me in, in, in English. And she told me, well, they probably are offended because they think you're a white person coming and they're, and they think that, you know, you think that they don't speak English. 
So they're responding to you to let you know, hey, don't talk Spanish to me. We're in a, you know, so, so I realized that Mexican people, and she was right, that Mexican people, when I would speak Spanish to them, they thought it was condescending. I was oblivious to this. They felt it was condescending. Oh, here's this gringo talking to me in Spanish because he doesn't think I would speak English. And they would sometimes even be rude to me and they'd be short. I'm like, why does it, you know? And so she suggested that from that point on, before you talk Spanish to somebody, ask them, hey, I'm, I'm learning Spanish. Is it okay if I speak to you in Spanish so I can practice? And I started asking them that. From that point on, that oh yes, of course, and 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 I would have beautiful interactions with people out in the community. So it was my ignorance to how I was being perceived by somebody when my intentions were good. That I'm trying to learn their beautiful language, and I was excited about it, and so I came in all excited speaking them in Spanish. But they interpreted it as here's this guy, you know. Here's this guy that doesn't know that, you know, I've taken the time to learn English and they were being insulted by it. And I, so that kind of story took me back to the, when I read that in the book, I thought we really need to take the time to understand that how we're being perceived by the other people. So, you know, by people that we're communicating with from different cultures. So I appreciate you giving that explanation. Yeah, because communication goes both ways. And I think that it, yeah. it's, it's communication is an exchange and both lines have to be open. Um, and I think that is the heart of what we're we're communicating. Right. Like. You know, it's not just immersion, but it's also the decentering of oneself to allow yourself to be fully immersed where for sure. Yeah one else's world but still making the world about you it's about the other people group or person's world to understand life from their perspective amen you talked earlier in the conversation about proximity and there was a story in the book that you tell of and i thought this is a really important story i wanted to to, to throw out there you talk about a gentleman named bob who was a white psychologist, and he owned a home in a neighborhood where gentrification was going on. And you pointed out that only because he worshipped at a black church that he learned through his friends in this church that they were going to church praying because their rents were going up in the community. He owned the home in the community. Most of his black friends from this church were renters, and and their rents were going up and they were being forced to leave the, the community. And here he was basically seeing firsthand that he was getting richer while his neighbors while his neighbors were getting basically poorer. Can you talk a little bit about that? And 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 because I think it really drives home a beautiful example of proximity. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Um, I was actually interviewing him for a documentary that we put together called Voiceless, and he was basically trying to explain how you can actually do more harm to people um, when you don't get a chance to actually understand uh, life from their perspective. And he was grappling with just learning the word uh, gentrification and what that actually meant and how 
um, his access to wealth also meant that it was giving people who are around him in this community a faster pace towards deeper poverty. And he realized that uh, there was a poverty that he wasn't actually aware of, and that was the inner poverty within himself um, that helped him to relate to the the actual physical physical poverty that people were experiencing around. And I think it's it was just a beautiful thing to include in the book because, you know, you can be around people, but not going back to what I said earlier, know them. Exactly. Know their struggles, know their prayers, their concerns, their interests. And while you may think that you are a neighbor just because you're proximate or just around people, you don't actually become a neighbor to someone until you're present in their life. And I think that is the step beyond just being proximate. I think that is as beautiful of way to end this conversation. Um, beautifully said, you don't really become a neighbor to somebody until you are present with them. Dr. Lester, thank you so much for our listeners. The book is All God's Children, How Confronting Buried History Can Build Racial Solidarity. By far, one of my favorite reads of 2023. Pick up a copy of the book. Um, the website is lovebeyondwalls.org. Um, you can follow Terrence on Instagram at I'm Terrence Lester. And any closing thoughts, Terrence? No, man, I, I just uh, appreciate the opportunity to share this space with you again. I'm honored and humbled. Every time you come on, the time just flies by. I'm humbled and uplifted just being in your presence and and uh, and just hearing your wisdom. Keep up the good work that you're doing out in the world and stay in touch, my man, and uh, wishing you all the best. Happy holidays to you and your family. Thank you, brother. In solidarity, man. Special thanks to our producer, Noah Existe, and editor, Joe Tempoco. Our music was written and performed by Algian Importante. Thank you so much for listening. If this podcast brightened your day in any way, please share it with a friend who you think it might resonate with. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review, as that is the single best way to help the show and get the word out to more good humans. For behind-the-scenes info, please visit our website at betterplaceproject.org, where you can even click on the microphone in the lower right-hand corner and leave us a message or just stop by to say hi. And you can follow us on Instagram at betterplaceproj, and you'll find me at Instagram at Steve Norris Official. Look for small ways to be kind this week, and that will help make the world a better place. Make the world a better place. Make the world. Make the world